Hi, and welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans in arts and culture from Korean American Story. The episode you're about to hear is our interview with designer Carol Lim, co-founder of Opening Ceremony. We sat down with Carol via Zoom and chatted with her about growing up in LA, her family's jewelry business, the Benetton dress she wore to her sixth grade graduation, and her strong power of nunchi. Nunchi translates roughly to emotional intelligence, the ability to quickly read a room. We hope you enjoy listening. Designer Carol Lim has been at the leading edge of American fashion since 2002 when she co-founded the retail shop Opening Ceremony on a neglected street north of New York's Chinatown. That store, variously described as a concept shop, an avant-garde department store, and a hangout for the coolest fashion kids in New York, became the start of something very special. Lim and her partner, Umberto Leon, went on to open multiple locations in Los Angeles, Japan, and London, and to design their own acclaimed collection, also called Opening Ceremony. In 2011, Carol and Umberto were named co-creative directors of Kenzo, Over the next eight years, they brought the Parisian label a new relevance, informed by their signature multicultural and multidisciplinary approach. The past year has seen a lot of changes for Lim. She and Umberto stepped down from their position at Kenzo and sold opening ceremony to an Italian holding company. Opening ceremony also announced it would be closing all its retail locations. Juliana and I have been longtime admirers of Carol, and we have so many questions for her, especially in this time of enormous change. Thank you so much, Carol, for doing the interview. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. You know, we've been wanting to interview you for over a year. And during that time, you were very busy, clearly. There was a lot going on with the company and all your changes. So maybe we could start, though. Can you just give us an update on what is going on with Opening Ceremony? So Opening Ceremony, I would say in our new form, is we've, we have our collection, which we just designed and we have available online, um, our Fall 20 collection. And we have just finished designing our Spring 21 collection, which we're very excited about. And so I would say the main difference has been a focus for us on our own brand, which um, thank you for that introduction. You mentioned we've had our own brand since the beginning. And I think over the last 18 years, really, of, of running the store, our line, all our special collaborations, it's been really nice to take a step back and think about our brand. And while it is just our brand, um, a lot of the DNA of what we have you know, created through opening ceremony, the store and the cultural experiences. So... It's been exciting and I think like everyone else uh, in the world, a time for reflection. So I feel grateful that the timing of all of this was somehow very fortuitous for us because we are in a position where we continually create, but we can do it with a thoughtful lens. So many retailers are having trouble these days, even before COVID. This was in the works already? This was. I think for us, we in the past two years have been thinking about what is our place and how do we continue to do what we do, but in a different way. And now you, we have young designers and talent that the 
it's very easy for them to set up online and, and to tell their own narrative. It's made us think about, okay, what is our model now and what is it going to be in the next five years? You know, we always say we have a refresh button because we feature countries every year. The name is called Opening Ceremony because it's loosely based on the Olympics. And Umberto and I sat one, you know, one month, um, a while back and we said, what is the ultimate refresh? And I said, part of that's going to involve taking, changing everything, you know, like small incremental changes isn't that it's not going to move the needle. We kind of need to do something really very yeah. different. And I think we did, we made that decision, you know, last year, early on, which put us in this position and we feel very lucky. And it actually affirmed to us the right decision that we made back then. Well, you two have impeccable timing to sell, or at least you announced in January of 2020. Um, and I can't imagine being a small business owner in fashion, weathering this pandemic on your own. You know, congratulations on your perfect timing. We feel very lucky. And yeah, it's been heartbreaking having conversations with a lot of colleagues because it is. I mean, on top of it being already difficult to survive. And, and I think this has now changed the mentality. I mean, and it's affected everyone at every level. There's been a lot written about the, your legendary friendship with Umberto and the beginnings of the company because it goes back to when you guys met in college at Berkeley. But I'd love to ask you about your childhood. Let's go back earlier. Yeah, so I was born in Los Angeles in Children's Hospital and near downtown. And I grew up there in mainly the Valley in Encino and in Northridge. And like many other Korean American families, you know, I, my parents, you know, worked hard. They had a jewelry store and they sent us to a private school. But really on the weekends, I spent it going to Korean class on Saturday and we went to church on Sundays. And, you know, it's a shared experience, I think, with a lot of other Korean Americans um, that have that. The church became a cultural kind of hub. I had a very happy childhood. Um, I grew up with an older brother and, you know, I had cousins in LA. And so it was a very, you know, I would say um, harmonious childhood. Um, and what's interesting is I think about now because people ask, you know, what were, you know, were your parents always supportive and this and that. And, you know, I'm having an older brother be the eldest and then the younger. I, I often think about birth order and gender and then culture, right? These three factors that I think my parents emigrated over. I know kind of the culture they grew up in and the expectations. But, you know, as a younger child and seeing that my brother got treated in certain ways, it just really enraged me. And it made it me competitive in a good way, I would say, because in a way, my parents didn't have too much to say to me. They just wanted me to get good grades. So I had a lot of freedom in a way that I could explore and kind of do things with my friends as long as I got good grades. So in a way that absence kind of allowed me to go explore. Um, and, you know, I think after the riots in LA, I think this idea of Korean American identity and culture, like all these different markers in my life kind of signaled like, oh, okay, actually there is, you know, being Korean American, I never really felt 
any of the issues that I felt after that moment when the riots happened, because I lived it almost in my own little bubble. I think there was a lot of focus on assimilation when I grew up. And as I went to college and actually coming out of it and living in New York, you know, to me, the trend, and we see it now 100% that this embracing of culture and what makes us different is actually, you know, liberating. I think when we were growing up and when our parents, um, my parents immigrated here in the 70s, there really was a need to or a desire to assimilate into the culture. You know, now that I have kids and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to present my culture and um, just really sitting down and thinking, it's really nice that we've all kind of come back from trying to fit in to really figuring out what it means to be Korean Americans and embrace our culture. And I loved seeing your uh, fashion show, or was it your lookbook um, that you did two seasons ago? Yeah, that was a conscious decision. I think, you know, having started opening ceremony, and having that narrative be Umberto and I's point of view, our friendship, our relationship, also just our, the way we changed as individuals, we could do things like that. And it felt so liberating. I mean, what you didn't see was the entire back of house. So the makeup artist, the hairstylist, the stylist, everyone was Asian. And it's great that actually we could find so many options for people back of house to fill these roles. Yeah, and so yeah. it's been, um, no, and it's great. And it's funny. We did an all Asian um, fashion show for Kenzo, say probably three seasons ago for a spring show, which was a very, very big deal for the brand. And let me tell you a lot of discussion with the French management on like, okay, you sure, like, why do you need to? And we're kind of like, you, this is a fight that you're not going to win. We're going to do it. And what was interesting is we had some other friends, um, friends of color, and we had a black friend and her husband come. And she said that after then, she was a former model. And she said that after the fourth girl coming out, she started crying because she actually realized what was happening, that it wasn't just like, Oh, one or two people. And then when she saw all of it and then all the males coming out, she was just like, that was the most impactful thing that she took away. She's like, I actually didn't even, she, the clothes were beautiful, but she's like, I just kept looking. And we had, I think, 40 female models and 40 male models. And actually that was really hard to cast. Yeah, I bet. And as I was thinking, are there 40 Asian male models in, you know, in Europe? <laughs> it was more difficult, but we were like, we're going to do it. Like, of course there are, like, we just have to work a little bit harder. And our casting agent, bless his heart, was just like, well, and it was funny, like the casting agencies would send people and we're like okay they don't look Asian but they would maybe have an Asian last name and then we'd have to ask them directly like oh where are you from and then some people would be some people were mixed and we're like okay so okay and we're like does that work because technically they are half Asian and then we made a decision where we would say like okay they have to look Asian like we we don't want to get into technical like we want it to be visually impactful <laughs> because we could make those decisions they are really important for us to do everyone is scrambling in the lives of black lives matter to suddenly cast a ton of people of color and throw out pages of the magazine and reshoot stuff and you guys were doing this way before any of this became like mandatory and you know 
part of yeah. like PR yeah. and you guys yeah. were on it. We want to see people, you know, that we, that look like us. I think, you know, that's the other thing. I think we never felt this is the right strategic move. We just were, were like, this would be a beautiful celebration. Let's, let's do this. And I think even when I look at the company over the years and who sat at the table around management, a lot, I mean, we had 70% women. I, mean, I did my own internal like demographics and I looked at our charts and I was like, oh my God, I was like, we are excelling in every category on women, on people of color, um, on just, and pay was like all the same. And like, you know, I was just like, we just did this because it felt right. One of the other things that Umberto and I had the, you know, fortunate experience of is we did work in corporate America before we started the company. And so I think we took from it all the things that we thought, well, these are great. Like these are great things to run a business. And then we're like, these are all the things that we definitely don't want in our culture that we wanted to do. And, and so we were able to at least steer away from the things we didn't want. I mean, we didn't have obviously like a roadmap to be like, this is exactly where we want to be, but we always knew what we didn't want to be. Carol, I want to still ask you more about your childhood and any article ever written about opening ceremony talks about how, um, it's like the coolest kids, the cool, you know, it's like a cool crowd. So, um, I'm curious to know, how would you describe yourself in high school? I would say one of the my favorite words to try to describe to anyone not Korean is nunchi. I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's a difficult word to try to translate, but I would say my greatest skill that I learned early on. And mainly this was because I was the youngest of all the cousins. You know, I was kind of always alone. So I was with the adults a lot um, and I'd always try to infiltrate. But what it taught me was just how to read a room, right? Like I could go in and I'd look and I'd see what was happening. And I would say that I kind of carried on through high school. I went to a small Catholic private high school. We wore a uniform and we did have some groups like you had you know, the sporty kids, the nerds, um, the popular kids, but everyone luckily kind of commingled because it was so small. But what I would say is I was kind of in every single group. And I think just this idea of taking a moment, um, I could always do that as a kid. And then I would just insert myself because I also knew the trick as a kid that I could just go to my parents and stamp my foot and be like, I want to go home now. Like no one's playing with me. Like, you know, they say that I was a difficult child because if I didn't get my way, I would try to bust up the whole party. Um, and I got better, but my mom always laughs because she's like, oh yeah, you know, if people were excluding you, you'd come and say it's time to go home. And, you know, I think as a child... Party's over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I guess that quality of being able to blend in, I guess, and move around. Um, and I think that that's something that has carried through into my professional career. Uh, you know, the reason why I think Umberto and I have developed a friendship from when we were 18 at college, um, we're kind of two sides of the coin. And I think the things that he is really good at and what I was good at, luckily, we had our own zones of where we were great at. But I, I mean, having a friendship that spans, you know, over 20, God, how old are we? A long time. Let's just say 25 years. Um, no, actually 27 years. We have absorbed each other's strengths. We've learned from each other in that way. So it's been pretty incredible. 
That's a, a remarkable relationship, really, to have such a close friendship and also a working relationship um, that is so generous to each other. And you would think that after knowing each other for so many years that there would be, you know, tendencies to be a little bit, clash a little bit more. But um, you two seem really generous with each other and growing um, really well together. Yeah. And I think you may not believe it, but people still ask, like, what have you ever been in an argument? And we have never once argued. Okay, that is crazy. (laughs) I know it is crazy, actually. Someone just a really close friend of mine was like, okay, I need the real scoop. Like what you must have argued, you know, because she's embarking on this you know, business relationship and, you know, they're close friends now. And, and I said, honestly, we haven't. The most we argue about is where to eat for dinner. I think a lot of it has to do with this trans, we've been transparent on what we want in our life. And I would say one big decision that actually we were aligned on because he did mention to me was when I first got pregnant and, you know, I told him and, he was like, oh, I did always say that I would want to have kids too when you got pregnant. And so that night in Paris, we like logged on, signed him up for a profile because him and his partner were, were had already been talking about it. But yeah, I mean, we even timed our kids. And I think that that would have been a big change in the yeah, relationship yeah, yeah. if he decided like that wasn't for him because, you know, I think... Obviously, for obvious reasons, the priorities begin to shift and, you know, rightfully so. But because we could even share that at the same time, like, I think it's brought us even closer. And he has two kids, too, correct? Yeah, mine are six and seven, soon to be eight, the older one. Um, And he has two twin girls that are seven. So Celia is a year older than Emmy and Mazzy, the twins, and then the twins are a year older than Millie. So it's four girls and they are oh really close. Oh <laughs> really well-dressed. Yes, well-dressed. <laughs> um, four strong female. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun. When you talk about how you balance each other out, I know that when you started the company, the original concept was that you were going to handle more of the business. Is that right? Because you were an econ major at Berkeley and he was a worked as a visual merchandiser. Is that right? Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about how you evolved, how you conceived of your what you do and then how you both evolved to become creative directors? That was really important for us to define. We were having dim sum at at Ping's down in Chinatown and we would go every Saturday. That was where we'd meet and then we'd walk around because we were looking for locations, but we defined our roles and we said, okay, you know, what happens if we disagree on, you know, this or that? And we made, you know, roles and responsibilities and we said, okay, you're the creative director. I'll be the CEO. And where we have decisions, this is where you have ultimate decision on how the store looks, the visual, and then I'll have the ultimate decision on budget. And so, you know, in the beginning days, though, we just did everything together. I mean, we were in the store and we were like waiting for people to come in. I mean, sometimes like not a single soul would come in and I'd have to buy something myself because I felt so bad that the cash register was zero. (laughs) Um, And then I would put it back to sell because I was like, well, I mean, I don't need this. It's like, Bad luck to have no sales. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then he would buy something. <laughs> and, you know, we, but we did everything together. <laughs> Were you always a creative person? 
I mean, in high school, did you do a lot of art? I mean, how did you develop as a designer, really? I was always interested in, I probably would say more merchandising, how things would go together and how things would um, look. So, you know, it's interesting because both of he and I, I mean, his, Umberto's mom was a seamstress and was, is, can literally remake anything that you see. So I think he, Umberto has always been exposed to that side of understanding sewing and garments and fit. But we, you know, Umberto studied art and American studies at Berkeley. I studied economics. So we didn't have the formal training, but we were always around. You know, the one thing that my mom also instilled in me was just good fit, right? So, you know, she'd buy it big, but then she'd hem it. You know, we, all these different things. So fabric, I mean, there are a lot of qualities, I think, that let, speak to, I think, the immigrant experience. It's not like, you know, she's looking at three-ply silk and like, let's get the most luxurious thing. But we would look for things that had value, you know? And I remember the very first full price item, and I still have this, garment and it's still at my parents' house in LA. I just looked at it was a full price Benetton floral dress. And it was for maybe my sixth grade graduation. And I was so in love with it. I looked at it for six months and then my mom was like, okay, finally, we're going to get it for you because it's not going on sale before the graduation. And I just remember looking at it and it was in its garment bag. And after I wore it, I would wear it for special occasions. And somehow it like fit me all through college. It was kind of like a, a balloon shape. Um, actually, I think I might even be able to fit into it now. I mean, actually, I should bring it back out. But this idea of value was something... Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I would say for creativity, yes. You know, I would always take things um, from my cousins and whatnot and relook at things. So I feel like I always had that curiosity inside of how I approached it. And even if I didn't have formal training, it ended up lending itself into, I think, how we approach just our buying, our merchandising and, you know, how I looked at, you know, how people consumed really. That's also something that fascinated me. I'd always go with my mom to the market, I'd always go with her to any errand that she would do. You know, she ran a jewelry store. So as I got older, I would go with her downtown to see what she would do. And, you know, her shop was in a um, city called Panorama City and the the clientele was predominantly black and Latino. And they would, you know, buy certain things. And my mom would say, hey, this Playboy bunny is my number one charm. And then she went to her vendor in LA and asked him to make him into earrings. And then that became his number one thing. He wholesaled it. So I would just see it happening because my mom was very, um, really good at taking the things that she, she was good at business, but she was also good at like, Oh, well, if I sell this well, I can make all this other stuff that sits with it. And so I just saw her doing that. And I think it just kind of influenced how I approached things. So they both ran the store. So my dad got a visa to come over through pharmacy. He came over, he trained as a pharmacist and was studying to get into medical school and eventually didn't pass the test, but it saved up a lot of money working at various jobs. My mom was a homemaker. She raised my brother and I, and she kind of was a bad worker because when my, she, my dad and mom got married, my dad was like, well, you know, if you want to work, you should too. Like, it would be fun for you before she had my brother. And like every job she applied to, like, it just didn't work out. Like she did something stringing pearls. She went to a factory and she was not productive enough until the jewelry store. And that 
was something that got introduced by my cousins, you know, much like a lot of the immigrant businesses, you know, someone who ran a jewelry store or a liquor store or a laundromat. And they basically told, taught you the ropes. So my mom basically was like, Oh, okay. Jewelry. Like, you know, our cousins are doing it. And she's like, we should get a little kiosk. And she got a kiosk and, and called it earring corner and made such a very good business out of it that she put my brother through all of us through private school and, you know, it's a really a, a great story. Like they were never home. You know, we were latchkey kids, but they did everything. You know, they paid for private everything that we could have wanted, you know. So, yeah, I think it's they're pretty amazing. And my dad um, ended up after the pharmacy and the 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 doctor, the doctor path didn't work out. He ended up, my mom would stare longingly at the building across from them. They lived in a small apartment building. And she said, one day when the family, you know, when we're rich, we're going to live in an apartment that looks like that across the way. And so I don't know how they did it. Like, you know, the numbers don't seem to add up. But somehow after studying for many years, my dad didn't get into the school he wanted, but he had saved up enough money that he ended up buying the building that they looked at. And they moved wow. in there. And so that my dad is, you know, is very intelligent, smart. I would say my mom is very street smart. And that combination, they just saved and they invested in real estate. So my dad helped my mom in the store, but my dad focused on real estate. And then my mom focused on the jewelry store. And she um, went on to design jewelry for opening ceremony. Is that right? She did. She did a couple pieces for us. You know, she'd always come in and be like, you know, this jewelry, who's buying this? It's so expensive. The gold is like so thin. And, you know, so she, you know, we used a lot of her vendors that she had close relationships with. And so, yeah, she did. We did do things together where uh, she would design the line. I mean, she would never say she did it, but she'd say, come and look at the stuff, turn it into something that you'd like. And same with Umberto's mom. She had a very big hand in the beginning on helping us sew, do patterns for us, um, you know, until the very end, the both of them, and they're very close to each other. You know, you see them always at our shows and they're a big part of our story because I think, you know, I finally after it succeeded and they saw, okay. And when I came out in the Korean newspaper, you know, cause Koreans, they need that validation. Right. So she's like, you, you, you were in the Korean newspaper and we clipped it out and, you know, everyone's sure they're sharing it to all their friends. I think they finally understood like what it was that we were doing because they're, they're very upset because they're like, you went to college, you both had corporate jobs. Like, why are you quitting to start a clothing business? They just thought we were really crazy. Yeah. And um, did they push your brother to become a doctor? So my brother, of course, you know, was pre-med at Pomona College, like was on the right track. And then, you know, he decided after his third year that that just wasn't for him. And he ended up going to film school <laughs> and ended up going into advertising. So it's, it's interesting because we found our own paths in a way. Like, I think actually my brother wanted to do, he didn't, wasn't forced. He's like, Oh, I'm really into science. And, um, again, I think when I look at my brother, he's very intelligent, like scored a near perfect SAT, you know, like things came easy to him academically. Whereas for me, you know, I mean, I studied hard, but it definitely was a harder, you know, I'd, I wanted to, I took the SAT twice to get my score up. And 
think I got a 1280, but I was like, oh, I couldn't break that 1300 barrier. But, you know, he got like a 1520 and he just like didn't even study. And so we just were wired differently. But in the end, I think he he's a very creative person. He's actually since passed. He passed away when I was pregnant with my first daughter. Um, but he lived kind of his life to his fullest and yeah, stayed in the creative field. Yeah, so young. Yeah, very young. And in a way, you know, I think he lived so opposite. You know, he, when he bought his next, like his last car, he bought a tiny sports car. I was like, that is so impractical. And he really lived his life in a way. Um, he was very spiritual, um, not necessarily in a traditional church sense, but he always just like, he didn't like to save. He liked to live in the moment. And I think in a way, you know, he knew, he knew something that we didn't. So it's, he had a good life, you know, but yeah, it was definitely a, a hard time. I, I'm impressed that you shared your SAT score with us. That is such a Korean thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I remember it. I remember really going, if I go for the third, I was like, I can't go for a third time. I was like, I just have to accept the 1280. Like, I was very upset about that. <laughs> I did not break 1300 either. <laughs> so you never considered going to fashion school? No, you know, and I think part of when we started opening ceremony, a lot of it was... And Bert and I always said, look, if in a year it closes, at least we tried, like we've done this, you know, we know what the path in corporate America could look like. We feel like we could always re-enter that, that track if we need to, but we just felt, I don't know. I think, you know, it was right after 9-11. In fact, we signed the lease for our space. We were supposed to sign that July of September, uh, that July of 2001, but somehow our SBA loan, something got delayed and then September 11th happened. And, you know, we were really considering not going forward with it. We got an approval of our SBA loan. We were sitting there going, okay, is this a sign? Like we shouldn't open. But after like a few months of just talking, we said, actually, we need to open. Like this is a good time to open. And so we went ahead with it. You know, we didn't have expectations. And I don't think that, you know, I think going to fashion school, we kept asking ourselves, like, what would we learn there that we would learn technically, okay, this is the exact way to do a tailored men's suit. Or, you know, we would learn a lot more into, you know, the intellectual and technical way of designing. But I think that having some of that freedom and not any of those restrictions in a way allowed us to just play with how we wanted to design. I mean, that's what I think is amazing is that you're really a self-taught designer, right? You didn't apprentice for a designer. You didn't go about this the typical path at all. No. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it's all self-taught. And, you know, I think Umberto obviously was exposed much more to pattern and sewing, but no, yeah, no formal training in, in the sense where, you know, you have many talented young designers coming from fashion, fashion school that can fully make a pattern. So, um, and do things that, you know, we don't, that's, just a different process from how we approach it. One of the things that I really like about um, what you and Umberto did with opening ceremony is that it became less fashion uh, clothes for fashion and, and more about um, fashion as culture. Like you really exposed um, 
Americans or the world to uh, different cultures um, and uh, what was special about them and just did, a, did almost like a primer course so that uh, it was easy for people to understand and find delight in it and uh, um, in a way aided uh, a globalization through, <laughs> through fashion, which is really just uh, like almost a painless way for people to understand each other. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I, I mean, we didn't consciously set up to do that. What we felt excited to share was our point of view when we, especially early on when we traveled, you know, you could discover all these incredible aspects of culture. And it wasn't just always about fashion and it needed to be, you know, high fashion. You know, I think one of our most fun examples was when we featured Brazil. And oftentimes, you know, the countries that got decided were influenced just by our friends, our friend Tatiana, who we were close to. So you must feature Brazil. You know, there's such great, you know, handicrafts and fashion. We're more than just swimsuits down there. And we're like, yeah, we should go. We would love to go. And so we did. We went. We went to Sao Paulo Fashion Week. We like sent an email. We're like, we have a store and, you know, we feature countries. And we got in touch with the consulate and they invited us down. And we saw amazing things, like amazing talent. And but one of the things that we also discovered was Havaianas the flip-flops. So we were looking around, watching just everyone on the street and from like mothers to like young kids, everyone had this flip-flop on in many different colors. And the most popular one that they had was it had a back strap. We kept asking, we were like, oh, where are those from? And they're like, oh, it's Havianas. You know, people were like, why are you stopping us and asking us? Like, you guys are being weird. And so one night we were at the hotel with jet lag and we asked our concierge, hey, is there anything open? Like, we want to go explore, like even a grocery store. They're like, that's the only thing that's open. It's three in the morning. They're like, you could go down the road. There's like a 24 hour, like a Walmart. And it was called Extra with... um two um, X's, like extra. <laughs> so we walked in and we had our little shopping cart and, you know, we we're buying like just random stuff. And we turned the corner, all of a sudden we see it. It's a huge wall of Havaianas. And, you know, there were $2 a pair. You could pick the strap color. We're like, oh my God, this is what everyone's wearing. So of course we bought like 50 pairs back. Everyone for our family and then our friends. And we're like, everyone's going to love this, this color combination. And so part of what we did was when we decided on the list of designers we wanted to carry, we called Havaianas, the company. We said, we want to carry your flip-flops in, in our store. And they're like, well... Why? They're like, okay, first of all, we don't import to the US. We only sell in Brazil and in Argentina, maybe at the time. So then I was like, I'm going to find um, an import exporter. They're like, well, that's not going to stop us. So this is again, 2000, the beginning of 2000. <laughs> of three maybe, or the end of 2002, I was still using yellow pages. That's another thing. Oh my gosh. Yes. The B2B. <laughs> yes. So I looked it up. I just like went down import export. I just like saw the first one that had the biggest ad and I called them. So we figured it out. We would, and we had it in our store and it was a huge hit. We literally could not keep them in stock. We made a huge business and actually we helped Havaianas go international because yeah, they never... Yeah. And in, in their 50th book, they 
I think they credit us, but you know, we were the ones that helped them figure out, okay, there's a bigger market outside of Brazil and everyone loves our flip-flops. What I love about that story is it sounds like what you and Umberto did was so much fun and pleasure at the same time, this pleasure of travel, pleasure of discovery. And it seems like the way you've operated is by making it feel like a big party or a family where you guys always seem to be cooking or going out to having dim sum. Um, and then you have this universe of talents and friends of the house who are, you know, artists like Spike Jones or Chloe Sevigny. And it honestly always struck me as like, just like a fun, cool party that was also your business. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a pretty accurate description. <laughs> so I'd love to hear just a little bit about the way that you would often bring people into opening ceremony, whether it was actress to be on the runway or, you know, you had, you didn't do a typical runway show. You create like an event. Did you reach out to people blindly that you admired or did, pe did you know people who just came by the shop or you met them through friends? Yeah, I would say a combination of all three, you know, in the case of Chloe, you know, we knew each other from going out and we had a lot of mutual friends, but it wasn't until she mentioned in an article in press somewhere where someone had asked her, like, you know, obviously she's a style icon, would she ever consider doing her own line? And she said in the press, no, you know, like I would never do a full line. She's like, I would definitely consider doing a couple of pieces with opening ceremony. It's my favorite store. And, you know, and then someone texted it to us and I was like, Umberto, you have to call her and see if she's serious. So then he went to go have coffee with her and then she came by the store and, and, you know, three pieces turned into her first collection, I think had like 40 pieces and shoes wow. and, you know, a bunch of different accessories. But you know, that's how it started. We can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, we're working on some good. I can't say anything yeah. yet, but, you know, we're working on a lot of collaborations and, and things that will be meaningful. So, again, I think we're really fortunate to be in a position where, you know, we can take that step back and it is about cranking out like four or five collections a year. Mm -hmm. We're being really thoughtful about what we want to put out uh, and what projects that we want to do. Um, and spend more time, I think, connecting with uh, our community and, and doing things like this and giving back. I think one of the things we always loved to do was, you know, we'd always go to Parsons. We'd always spend as much time or, you know, if we were ever invited to speak on panels to college students or high school students, that that was a very big part of what Umberto and I um, spent any free time that we had was to do things like that mentorship program. So I think that's been still something that's close to us. So, yeah. So do you know when we can expect to see the, the first launch of the new iteration of opening ceremony? Yeah. So I would say our transition collection is out now, but really spring 21. So it will, in the normal world, it would have been available to, we would have done a show in January, but we're rethinking our format. Um, you'll begin to be able to see imagery in the beginning of the new year. I was feeling kind of sad about opening ceremony, closing down, but now I have this feeling of optimism and I can see yes. it in your face. You look like you have a lot in, 
going on that you can't tell us about, but it's- <laughs> we do. It is. I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of funny because everyone's like, it's closing. I was like, it is closing in one form, but it's still going on. And I think as we navigate what our new world looks like and what physical retail will be, which I think it will still be an integral part of anyone's brand. Uh, we're excited to reinvent what that is. And I think, you know, it's the right cycle of time. And I think in a way it's much easier to clean the slate instead of try to do small improvements. So in a way it's good. Yes, we're still here and we're going to come back in a different form. We are really looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carol. Yes, thank you, Carol. Thank you. We want to thank Carol Lim for being our guest on K-Pod. You can find her on Instagram at Carol Lim and you can follow Opening Ceremony at Opening Ceremony.